This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado Matters continues an experiment today to see if Coloradans can break out of their political bubbles and get to know people with very different views, perhaps even find common ground. We assembled a small, diverse group and have been serving them dinner in our lobby, adding tablecloths and candles to make things homier. This experiment is called Breaking Bread, and our guests have found some common ground, even on issues like climate change. But let's not overstate this. No one has changed their minds when it comes to President Trump. Well, today, this experiment takes us away from the dinner table. You see, early on, Annette Gonzalez, a Trump supporter from Pueblo, shared something with Mehdi Khan, a Green Party voter from Aurora, who's Muslim. Feel out there. I- I've never met a Muslim. <laughs> I've never sat and talked to one. (laughs) That night, off mic, Mehdi invited Annette to visit his mosque, and we thought it was a cool idea. So a few weeks later, I rang Annette to organize things. I am just interested in gauging whether you would do with Mehdi what you guys talked about at the end of the first night we were together, which is um, to visit the mosque in Aurora with him Mm. and maybe have us record it. Wow, that's a huge thing for me. <laughs> is it? Yes, it is. It's a totally different thing for me outside my comfort zone completely. Um, yeah, I would do that. Yeah? Yeah. It's a big deal, yeah. But I would do it. It was hard to pinpoint Annette's concerns about the mosque visit, but we agreed to get her on the line with Mehdi beforehand so that she could ask a few questions, get more comfortable with the idea. I'm just going to let you guys talk. Okay. If you have any questions on that or... I do. If women and men worship separately, how can you take a female guest? Oh, uh, so uh, the women have their separate quarters. And uh, if you choose, you could come to the Friday prayer. You could see how our Friday congregational services are. And if that happens, then, you know, I asked my wife if she could come and then you'd probably try and take time off to come. And it, you know, is it inappropriate for me to speak to the men there or not really? I, I don't know. I mean, okay. I'm yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, we were, we live in America, so Yeah. You know, nobody would be offended if you asked. All right. Well, that um answers my questions. Is there anything I should know? Uh not really. I mean, uh, don't feel you need to hold back any questions you have. Just know nobody's ever offended. As okay. long as the person's sincere. Okay, cool. Annette did have one more question for Mehdi. Then, uh, of course, we're going to reciprocate, and you're going to come down here to Pueblo to go to my church, right? Of course. Let's do it. Okay. Thanks, guys. Sweet. Thank you. All righty. Okay. Look forward to seeing you guys. Bye-bye. Yep, you all too. Right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. We all hung up and started looking at our calendars. Then Annette got cold feet. In a phone call she didn't want us to record, she said she was scared. So we thought, well, there goes our attempt to bring people from different walks of life together. I called Mehdi to tell him. Annette doesn't want to come to the mosque anymore. Oh, okay. She is, she's just not um, comfortable with it. She says her family is not comfortable with it either. And she is making uh, a separate offer which is okay. to still come down to Pueblo and go to church on Sunday and then talk afterwards about maybe her own fears, your observations, and I'm wondering if you're willing to... Um, 
I don't know. That's kind of hurtful. But, uh, I mean, she can look at the website. Has she tried to look at the website at all? Or I'm not sure. She says that it was her birthday the other day, and her whole family was there, and they just didn't want her to go, and they said they were going to hogtie her there, so... Well, her family's invited, too, if they'd like to come with her. I, you know, I don't think any would mind. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, not sure that I'm going to be able to get Annette to budge on this. Um, really? Yeah. I don't uh, think so. <clears throat> well, there's a, <clears throat> there's a community down in Pueblo as well. Yeah. We could uh, we could maybe try and meet up with them. I don't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's one option. Let me ask, the w- the worst case scenario here is that she's unwilling, but that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, perhaps you are willing to be magnanimous enough to go to her church. and Sure, of course. Her. Of course, yeah, no problem. I, yeah. You know, I'm not afraid to go or anything. And it's my duty to clear up any uh, misconceptions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an opportunity, whether we're in a mosque or not, for you to answer exactly. questions for yeah, sure. and to address concerns or misconceptions. And maybe she'll be more willing afterwards, you know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. We can always hope. Who knows hope. how persuasive you can be? Well, <laughs> I'm not a car salesman. But <laughs> Good morning, Adopi family. So we picked a Sunday and met at Annette's church, Agape Fellowship, a.k.a. the Love Church. She arrived first, carrying a Bible her mother gave her. It looked well-worn. Yes, I love to mark up my Bible and make notes to myself. Because, you know, you always say, isn't that in the Bible? Doesn't the Bible say something about that? Well, I, I read and I find it. Right before the service started, Mehdi arrived. And I later learned that he'd never been to Pueblo before or to a Christian church He and his wife had driven down from Aurora the night before and stayed in a hotel to make sure they'd arrive on time. Mehdi's wife, Malia, wore a headscarf. They greeted Annette, sat down, and at Annette's request, because she was apprehensive, I sat in between them. On this particular Sunday, a member of the church led the service. The congregation is diverse, white, black, Latino, young and old, During the sermon, there were lots of references to God's love and forgiveness. At times, people called out, yes, and clapped, and there was a lot of music. Afterwards, we found a quiet place to talk, and pretty much right away, Mehdi addressed the elephant in the room. Why had Annette backed out of the mosque visit? So... Uh, we've been. I've been thinking about this for like two weeks, and I was really hurt by what. I'm you know, sorry. Your I'm sorry. What, that is not what I intended. We, we just want to know why our actions were rebuffed. It, it wasn't you personally. Please understand that it's fear of the unknown. Uh, my family, my children. I have six adult children, and uh, they were apprehensive um, with some of the violence that goes on. Um, you had mentioned that your mosque hires security, as my church does as well, and I guess. Just fear of um, of possible violence. Just fear of the unknown. So you're saying violence. Uh, our mosques in Aurora got stones thrown at it in Fort Collins. Uh, windows are broken there as well. So the yeah. only violence I see is, I hate to say this, but I'm assuming it's Christian folks. You know, maybe they believe that their religion teaches it, carrying out acts of violence against us. Mehdi's wife, Malia, who's sitting next to him, chimes in. I don't know. I don't know if fear of the unknown is a good enough excuse, because I think we live in such a 
diverse place. And I mean, the church that you go to is pretty diverse from right. what I saw. Right. Um, it seems like your family is very diverse. Very. I mean, fear of the unknown. I don't know if that's good enough to answer such a big thing. I mean, I don't you know, know why. I just, I don't know. I um, really can't explain it. And, and I didn't want to offend anybody. Um, I still wanted to have the conversation, you know, about uh, the differences and the, the similarities. Okay. So, Annette, you said that your church has security. We saw them. And that the mosque has security. So why do you have a fear of, of violence at the mosque in particular? Because, like you said, it seems to be the targets. I, I don't know. And, and it's not real, quote-unquote, Christian people that are doing the violence. Yeah, in the name of, or, you know, that's same, their excuse. Same as, the, same as what's happening with our folks. Same excuse, but we all get painted with that brush. You know, that, oh, well, Christians do this, and well, Muslims do that. And, and we have to individualize ourselves and say, well, that's not me. That's not how I feel. But, you know, you're talking about the fear of the unknown. This was my first visit to Pueblo, and my wife is coming with me. I've never been to a church service. Right? So this fear, you go to our mosque, you'll see members of the military that are Muslims. I'm talking about, you know, in Aurora, I see that. There's right. Muslim cops of the Aurora Police Department. We're in every fabric of this society. And to think there's going to be violence because you go to visit, people will welcome No, I didn't you. mean like me visiting would cause violence. We have all these fears, but we say, okay, we're Muslims, we believe in God, and we're doing this for God, God will protect us. Yeah, Doesn't Christianity speak of the same thing? That's exactly, yes, it does. It so does. I didn't come here for myself. I said, you know, God will be happy if I come, and I'm going to show that we Muslims, we are able to turn the other cheek, because our religion tells us, it's in the Quran, when you meet the Jews and Christians, speak of what is common between you, that you worship the same Lord. This is in the Quran. I, I don't know, I was... Uh raised by my folks in the church. They were youth leaders, and so we were in church all the time, went to church school, the whole bit. Um, and basically they taught us at that time, and I understand that there was a lot of allowable and encourageable discrimination that went on back then. Um, and so we were taught not to mess with anything that wasn't our religion. You know, even as far as the Catholics, um, we were Baptists. You know, so now that I'm an adult and I see all this conflict and stuff, I do look for these similarities. What do we share in common? I mean, can we get along? Can we work in the same office? Can we be neighbors? And uh, I think it can be done on a one-to-one -one basis. Malia picks up on something Annette said about not painting Christians with a broad brush after a mosque is vandalized. She says the same benefit of the doubt just isn't given to Muslims in this country. When... A Muslim does something, if they do any act of violence, immediately before we find out anything else about them, we find out their religion. Right. Um, and so the first thing we say is, they're Muslim. Oh, my goodness. They believe in this God. They go to this mosque and things like that. And the same isn't done for everybody else. So we don't know the religion of the person who attacked the mosque in Denver. We don't know the religion of the, you know, person who, you know, put bacon and broke six windows in Davis, California. That's where we got married. I don't know the religion of that girl. Yeah. Why? I should know. I mean, this was a religiously, you know, um, it's kind of a religiously bigoted act. I would kind of want to know who 
did that and who right. carried it out. Probably somebody with no religion. <laughs> I mean, that's that's an we option too. You that's know? true, and we also believed yeah. that when Muslims do these acts, they're actually doing it outside of the fold of Islam, whether they themselves believe that they're Muslim or not. They, you know, we don't believe people in ISIS are Muslim. I don't right. believe that. They do so much that is they against... They kill the most Muslims. Yeah. That's all they kill is Muslims. Annette, you said that you grew up in a home and a church that saw other faiths, even other Christian faiths, as the enemy or different or outside. What is your perception of Muslims in general? Well, I only know what I've seen on TV. Mehdi and his wife are the first Muslims I've actually met in person. So I've always wanted to meet a Muslim and talk to them and say, you know, are you all this violent? Are you always angry? You know, um, because that's all we see on TV. That's the only portrayal we have of them. So I'd like to think that they're not all like that. We are not that violent, and, you know, I can say the same thing about Christianity with all the colonialism over five, six hundred years. We can ask the same thing. Well, Christians supposedly did this. They're, but do you feel like you're made to kind of defend? Yeah, we are put your, as, as minorities. Yeah, as as I feel with mine, you know, being a Christian. I feel like I'm uh, constantly having to defend that because so many idiots that call themselves Christians— commit violence and, and do ignorant things, you know? Right, but you won't see people coming out. You won't see me coming out and saying, hey, Christianity is a violent religion. You won't see the media say that, hey, uh, let's look at what the Bible verses that this person posted on their Facebook. And uh, you may feel that, oh, Christians are under attack, but just imagine in our shoes that, hey, we're the ones that came out here to Pueblo, a city we've never been to. I've never been to a church service either. But we're the ones that came out and did this. So we also have our own fears, you know? Yeah. So, what were your fears, Mehdi? As a community, I didn't know how I was going to be received. I knew that I'm not a, an ignorant, prejudiced person. So I, you know, I don't think somebody's going to come and try and kill me afterwards. But I thought that, hey, if Annette, you know, rebuffed me in such a manner, is this what her church teaches us, teaches her to treat people this way? So when I come, will they be ignorant towards Muslims? Will they have prejudices against And did you community? find that when you came? I did, we didn't interact with people much at all. We just oh. came in and then we, we left. We shook hands with maybe one person, one or two people. As it would probably be when you come to the mosque. Everybody's there to do their prayer, do their religious obligation and go home. People, our kids are running around in our mosque. You know, the people are zoning out. I was zoning out in the church. I zone out in my mosque. You know, like, when is this going to be over looking at my watch? It's all normal. <laughs> it's all normal. Annette, know? what did you want Mehdi to understand by inviting him to your church? Uh, maybe just to have the experience. My faith drives me like, like I know it does you. Mm-hmm. Your faith drives you. And I use it in daily life, you know, so and me. it's very important to me. It's what keeps me going. And, of course, you want to share something like that. It's like a life hack. My religion got me through the hardest parts of my life. Yeah. You know, and, you know, same from Aaliyah. So what did you think of the service today? Was it totally different than what you used to? Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, we just don't have instruments. And, you know, the stories and the messages were the same. Throughout the service, I was able to go back to the Quran and find verses that discuss basically the stories that were being told. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the story of Moses, we have the same exact story. So, Mehdi, you were looking up 
portions of the Quran That's as correct. you heard the service. Yes, I was. So these themes are common in our religions. And what right. you hear in our mosque is very similar. And we, we just don't have instruments. We recite verses of the Quran, the imam does, and we're all silent. There's no talking. You had concerns, Annette, about the role of women in Muslim society and even in a mosque. I know that was some of your hesitation. Right. Um, Because I know that they separate them and they have strict rules, you know, about um, how women can talk to certain men and can't or whatever. I don't know. Do you feel at all, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, suppressed or oppressed or anything like that Mm, as being a Muslim? No, I don't feel oppressed. Um, I'm not sure what you're referring to, not being able to speak or... Um, Like, um, and maybe this is just in other countries, Muslim countries, but like um, women are supposed to have a male family member go with them if they go out in public or that kind of stuff. Um, And that you are not supposed to speak like to a man without somebody, you know, from your family, male family member there. Oh, okay. Um, That's in Saudi Arabia, from what I know. I mean, they just gave women the right to drive for the first time. I have never been there. I'm not from there. I don't... It's not something that's part of your religion or your culture or anything? that you. Okay. But in any case, um, you know, if Mehdi isn't here, it's not like I can't talk to Ryan. Okay. work with a lot of males where I work and it's not like I'm like oh my goodness I need somebody else here with me like I'm not right. handicapped without Medi there or somebody we else in the modern from, world yes so. right. we're just like everybody else and it's not like you're gonna go to the mosque and someone's going to you know tell you to look different or pipe down if you talk or anything like that do you sit separately from the men yeah we sit separately I'm personally more comfortable that way in the one that we go to there is a one-sided mirror kind of a thing where yeah, we kind of look see us we don't see them yeah oh, okay so we can look into the men's side they can't really see our side is that but to I mean, keep from being distracted do you think partly yes. so that you're focused so. on god yeah i think you're just focused on god at that time my sense is that our guests in this latest episode of breaking bread are getting more comfortable with each other so I check in with Annette Gonzalez, the Trump voter from Pueblo, and Betty Kahn, the Green voter from Aurora. I don't have the fears that I had. The butterflies have gone away. I mean, I'm happy Annette has an open mind. Like, before I was, I had this perception that, you know, she's narrow-minded. She doesn't want to learn. And it really makes me happy. And I hope more listeners are like this, that they're willing to go out of their element and explore what our religion is. I mean, America is so involved in Muslim countries. Right. The American people need to know who they're dealing with. Do you think the current administration is creating an environment where what we're doing here today is more possible or less possible for less. people? Less. Yeah. When you're building the wall to the south and then you're, you're keeping the Muslim uh, people from coming in and things like that, probably not good for relations. So help square your vote for me with what you've just said about the administration. You think this is a White House that doesn't foster as much dialogue as it could. Am I right Right. in in what you've said there? Right. Uh, Trump is not really one to sit down and listen to everybody's opinion. He, I think, probably does the overview, the outline type of thing, and then makes a snap decision and sticks with it. 
and, and gets her done. And you like that aspect. I do of like that. President. But I like some of the things, some of the campaign promises that he kept and things that he's doing. But he has flubbed up a lot. I mean, take that Twitter account away for crying out loud. I think it's up to us on the, on the ground. We're the boots on the ground to learn to get along and be neighbors and, and not feed into that garbage, you know, that we have to hate each other. And, and I just want to make clear and that you still uh, stand by your vote for president. Yes, Trump. I do. I think one thing he's been effective at is because he's not politically correct. Right. He has been able to get so many Muslim people to wake up and so many people who are minorities to wake up and be like, I think we need a change. We need we cannot have this happen. I think President Obama, he's a great he was a great president, but you know, Pakistan was bombed a lot during that time. There's a lot of bombing in Pakistan, in Libya, and other countries that just wasn't talked about because, you know, he's charismatic and he was politically correct and he said the right things. And a lot of the actions were, were overshadowed by his charisma and his words and how he portrayed himself. And it just seems like he's such a nice, normal guy, you know. But a lot of bad but things happened on his watch. That's true. That is true. I mean, even Benghazi and stuff, yeah. Exactly. And I'm just saying, so one good thing with Trump being a president is we are able to speak out more, We um, and it's more accepted that we can. Then came a surprise. Annette, unprompted, said she really ought to return the favor and visit a mosque with Mehdi and his wife, Malia. So it sounds like I need to go. We need to make another arrangement, and Definitely. I need to go. We're normal To people. your mosque. And see what's going on. We have donuts after Friday prayer. We oh, don't have yeah. cookies. We have <laughs> I'm donuts. there. <laughs> you know, we're human beings. Anything can happen anywhere. You go to, We live in Aurora. You go to the Aurora Theater, we, know, we all know what happened there. Right. Anything can happen anywhere, but you can't let that stop you from reaching out to other people, building bridges, so you can come together. That was my whole idea in accepting it to start sure. with. Annette, you said that it was your family in part that had concerns about you walking into a mosque. Right. What do you think they're going to say when you go back to them after this and say, I am going? I'm not telling them. Well, next week, we'll see if Annette Gonzalez made it to the mosque with Mehdi Khan and his wife, Malia. That's as Breaking Bread continues, our search for common ground among political opposites. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's talk now about one of the most influential people in Colorado's modern history. This guy wrote really strict limits on how governments here can tax and spend. This was through a ballot measure that passed 25 years ago, and it's still really controversial today. The story plays out in CPR's new podcast, which debuts tomorrow. It's called The Tax Man, and it comes from three CPR reporters. The Tax Man. It's Douglas Bruce, the legendary Douglas Bruce. I guess to me, one of the most interesting aspects of this was meeting Douglas Bruce for the first time and realizing he's not maybe the monster that some people claim he is. We spent hours over months. We talked to dozens of different people about him. Uh, We were in the basements of television stations pulling out old tapes from election nights. 
Um, I was at the public library looking through microfilm from 30 years ago, pulling out quotes of things he said and, and letters he wrote. It's Nathaniel Minor, Ben Marcus, and Rachel Estabrook, and they're here to preview this podcast. So Doug Bruce is the man. Douglas. Du- Douglas du- Bruce. Douglas. Okay, don't shorten it. What is he responsible for? The Taxpayer's Bill of Rights. Tabor. Right. And we hear that phrase so often, but... You know, I would guess that a lot of Coloradans don't actually know what it is. And I get that because it's complex by design. And you might think of it as the ability to vote on taxes. That's the most basic thing. But it also puts in all these other restrictions to essentially make the government small here. And we had to understand why he wanted that. Small government. You can't say you're free if the government can take away everything you have without your permission. He sees this as an all or nothing proposition. Yeah. To him, it's like, it's freedom, right? It's, is what the government doing making me less free or more free? And it took us a while to understand that because not a lot of people think like Douglas Bruce, clearly. But what's interesting to us is that he, 25 years ago, convinced a lot of people to think like him. And now, you know, the state is still dealing with the consequences of that. Ben Marcus, I'm curious, had you read Tabor in full? before starting on The Taxman. I have to admit, I did not. It's not until this project that I actually sat down and read it. It's 1,800 words. It's not that long, but it is, as one source told us, full of nuances and side angles, and it's how it interacts with government, not necessarily the words in the amendment, which makes it so difficult to understand. Rachel, you talked about the fact that many Coloradans may not know much about Tabor. Uh, We have new folks moving to the state every day. How does Tabor affect their lives? Well, I'll tell you, it gets blamed for a lot of things um, when there's not enough money for road funding or when the schools are underfunded or the fact that now students in public colleges and universities are paying such a higher portion of their tuition than they used to. You know, the state used to pay more for it. And what we've figured out and what you'll see in this podcast is Some of those things, there are connections, but in a lot of ways, politicians have found ways to live with Tabor. I'm going to leave it at that. You'll have to listen to understand what that means. But what's interesting is as it gets blamed for all the stuff, Douglas Bruce says, that's by design. There are no unintended consequences. None. Zip. Zero. And they get very angry when they hear that, but that's too bad. Does that mean that he's never been surprised by anything Tabor has resulted in? It's such a far-reaching policy. I kind of have a hard time believing that. But I'll let you decide. And this is a law that people are constantly trying to change. Uh, Even people who support Tabor say that it's a ghost of itself. When you look at court decisions that have weakened it, referendum C in 2005, which was led by a Republican governor to kind of gut some of the more onerous revenue restrictions. And which oddly led the mayor at the time, now Governor Hickenlooper, to jump out of a plane. In the 90s, Colorado's economy was flying high. But then we fell into a recession. Unfortunately, there's a glitch in Tabor that means that money for important things like education, transportation, and healthcare keeps falling and falling. What's this podcast going to sound like? Well, that's the kind of archive tape that we're working into this podcast, and we have lots of original music. It's really a rousing, character-driven story. The Taxman, it debuts tomorrow. Yeah, and you can subscribe now on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Search for The Taxman. We're also airing it all this week 
on Colorado Matters. We heard from CPR's Rachel Estabrook, Nathaniel Minor, and Ben Marcus. At Denver's South High School, an unusual class meets in Room 142, the newcomers class. They are all new refugees, adjusting to an American culture that can be hostile and learning a brand new language, sometimes starting with the simplest words like pencil. Denver journalist Helen Thorpe spent a year with these students, even traveling to a country that some of them fled. And her new book about the experience is The Newcomers. Helen, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Take us into this newcomers class on the first day. Uh, What did it look like? What did it sound like? So this room changed so much over time. At the outset, it was a really, really quiet room and there were very few kids in the room. Um, There were just seven kids there on the first day of school, and um, the number even went down from there. As two kids learned so much English, they moved upstairs. So there were just five kids for a little while, Um, and it was very, very quiet. The kids weren't saying anything. They were just terrified. And at the outset, I worried, can I even write about this room? Mm. They were quiet in part because they didn't speak English. Right. And this is is an acknowledged part of language acquisition. Yeah, they didn't speak English and they were overwhelmed. Those two things were true, I think. Yeah. And so they were listening to this new language, trying to understand their circumstances. Why do you think they were scared? Yeah. Well, I think it's an overwhelming experience to come from the parts of the world where they had been living to the United States. Our life here is just so different. And that's part of what I'm trying to show to readers, that spending time in this room, you can actually learn a lot about what we take for granted. Um, Some of these kids had never had a hot shower before or had not always had a roof over their heads or had been hungry. And, uh, you know, in America, we can take our hot showers for granted and not think about the fact that that's actually unusual. You talk about the fact that at the beginning of the year at South High School, this class for refugees, the newcomer class, is small, but the size fluctuates. I just want to read a portion from the book that explains why. Please. Over the coming year, the strife-ridden parts of the planet would dispatch many more students to this teacher. His name is Mr. Williams, who has this class. They turned up uh, that way every year. Higgledy-piggledy, not when the calendar advised. Some of them would arrive looking alarmingly thin. They could be anywhere from 14 to 19, and some did not know exactly how old they were. Right. Yeah. Um, so as as you were mentioning, these kids arrive scared, they're overwhelmed, and they are also in a phase called the silent phase of language acquisition. So they arrive in, in you know, looking just, just like that passage that you've read. And the teacher's job really is to uh, help them settle, help them acclimate, help them feel trust. And so he does a lot of talking at the outset, just trying to gain their confidence and make them feel like they can start pronouncing these strange English words and he won't make fun of them or laugh at them or tell them they're doing it wrong. And they may trickle in throughout the school year, depending on what the status of refugees is, how many the United States is taking in and how many are coming to Colorado. The teacher in this case is a man named Eddie Williams. Tell me about him. I just was in awe after I spent a year in his company at what he was able to accomplish. So Eddie Williams is six foot 
four inches tall. He's a soccer player, a soccer coach, as well as a teacher. He's an incredibly kind man. He's very introverted, very thoughtful, highly sensitive. You know, some some teachers excel because they can entertain a whole class at the front of the room. They're sort of like actors. In exactly. That His gift really is to meet each kid right where that kid is and know exactly what that particular student needs to thrive. And he is teaching students from many different countries and with many different languages. By the end of the year, he had 22 students who spoke 14 languages and used five different alphabets. Wow. Your own family background, I think, was part of what led you to write this book. Tell me about that. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, but my parents had immigrated to this country. And um, just in our household, my mom, uh, she wasn't really like, she didn't read us stories at night. She she told us stories. So every single evening of my childhood, I went to sleep after listening to my mom kind of describe some dramatic thing that had happened on this farm in rural Ireland where she grew up. She was one of 10 kids. Um, she told stories like all the, you know, about all the chores she had to do or the time that her dad loaned her out to a sister who didn't have kids of her own so that my mom would do all the chores on that farm. Um, it was just a very different kind of childhood than the one I was having. And for me, it was very natural to then try to as an adult, as a journalist, seek out people who'd grown up in other countries and try to listen to their stories about what life was like in some other place. Suffice it to say, they've really dealt with the worst the planet has to offer by the time they land at Denver South High School. I mean, uh, famine, incredible violence, the death of close family members. They arrive with a traumatic past. That's true. And they also arrive at a moment when their story is about to become much more joyful Mm. and where they finally feel safe. And I think that's what's missing from our conversation about refugee resettlement. We have a lot of headlines about how dire and difficult and terrible um, the state of the world is. But we forget that once a family is chosen to resettle, they're finding a safe home. They're feeling secure. They're getting the chance to start over. And they find this incredibly um, joyful, and they're very, very thankful. And again, the face of this for many of them in these first few days is this teacher, Eddie Williams, at South High School, who even has a pantry. He provides food to some of these families. In his classroom, there happened to be this closet that was filled with um, all sorts of food from lentils to rice and beans. And uh, on the first day of school, the teacher took his students in to show them, this is the food bank. You can take food here. And he knew they probably didn't understand his words. So he just started, you know, wordlessly handing out food to the kids. And they kind of, you know, beamed at him when he did that because they were actually hungry. South High in Denver is uniquely equipped to welcome these kids because apart from the newcomers class, it's a pretty diverse place. The school is the designated place where kids are 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 directed if they've had um, their schooling interrupted by war, most typically, and if they speak a foreign language other than Spanish. And so it, it is a place that's extraordinarily diverse. Um, a third of the kids are foreign born um, and have been in English language acquisition classes at some point. You were there during the 2015-2016 school year, a very politically charged time. Right. Uh, this is as Donald Trump was running for president, yeah. and he was quite critical of the refugee resettlement program. How did that affect the students? I think the students, especially from the Middle East, felt personally um, 
criticized by by the rhetoric. And um, they also encountered over the course of the year increasing hostility, especially as they were in transit on city buses. They generally live lived about an hour away by public transit, and they were spending an hour on the buses in the morning and an hour in the afternoons going home. They felt safe inside of South, where there was a very accepting and understanding environment, but other commuters were generally where they ran into trouble. And as Trump kind of went on and on about um, how dangerous he felt Muslim refugees might be, they, they encountered increasing vitriol and hostility. They were called terrorists, for example. And, and the great tragedy is, I mean, the families here generally had um, supported the American invasion of Iraq and the American presence in the Middle East. And so actually the opposite was true. They had been fighting against terrorism themselves. Right. It is often true that refugees from Iraq uh, were forced to leave the country because they were seen as complicit with the United States and therefore targets. Yeah, and, and they so actively helped us. Helped this country, yeah. right? You say the faculty at South did everything they could to help the student body grapple with this unleashing of vitriol upon the foreign-born students. The number of kids who sought counseling reached levels that nobody had ever seen, and two students attempted suicide. Yeah, that was the week after the election. Yeah, an incredibly difficult time at South. Um, they, the kids did decide to hold a press conference there, which I attended, which I, I love the fact that they wanted to turn around and then speak out uh, about what was happening. With so many different students, the class, the newcomers class fluctuating and as many different languages as there were, how did you keep track for this book? So I actually, at the outset, found it a very bewildering environment. Um, I think the teacher himself, you know, he had done this for many years. He was actually a master teacher coaching other teachers as well as teaching these students. So he was familiar with the countries that were producing refugees and what languages the students spoke. But to me, I had never heard of some of the languages before, like, like what? Tigrinya and Karen. So Tigrinya is the most common language in Eritrea, and Karen is widely spoken by the you know Karen ethnic minority in Burma. But I didn't know that those languages even existed. So when the kids showed up, I was having trouble at first um, just tracking who was in the room and what their names were and what languages they spoke. So I made this color-coded chart on a whiteboard in my office where I, um, you know, if, if a kid arrived speaking Spanish, they might be in red. And if a kid arrived speaking Arabic, they would be in, say, purple. Um, what what happened when I looked at my whiteboard was actually I could then see which kids were very alone or isolated because they were the only ones speaking mm. that particular language. And then I, I, I watched that play out in the classroom as those kids were especially isolated from others at first. Uh, how closely tied are, there, are they to their old countries? Um, do, do they have a lot of contact with family back home? So um, when I say back home, I actually mean at their former home. Right. So so. Uh, Many of the families who arrive here um, are coming, be, and, and there, there might be a whole community from the country that they're originally from. So uh, the largest number of students in the room were from the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the country that sent the most refugees to the U.S. last year and the year before. And there's a pretty big and growing Congolese community in Denver, and they remain very tied, I think, to their, to their country um, of origin. Uh, I also spent a lot of time with an Iraqi family, and um, in that case, you know, they had left Iraq about a decade earlier and had been essentially wandering around the Middle East, 
And their closest relationships were, were with other Iraqis who were also displaced. Perhaps in Syria. Correct. They were all living somewhere else, Syria or Turkey. Um, so they're not so tied to Iraq itself as much as they are to um, fellow displaced Iraqis elsewhere. And so it's really important to keep in mind that for a lot of refugees, the journey did not begin when they left their home country. The journey may have been years, decades long before they arrive in the United States. Yeah, it's a long and wandering path here. You focus a lot on four students in particular. Let's start with a pair of sisters from Iraq. Yeah. Um, Mariam and Jacqueline. So Mariam and Jacqueline walked into the classroom in October 2015. And right away, um, you know, they were introduced to the classes being from Iraq. And right away, you know, just from the expressions on their faces and how they were behaving, you could see how intelligent they were, but also that they were very um, sad and distressed. Uh, they had trouble engaging with their the schoolwork. I, I was very curious about them. I was wondering, you know, what are the impediments? What what is the difficulty here? I could I could see it manifesting, but I I didn't know why. And also, one sister began wearing a hijab or a headscarf, and the other one didn't. And that was mysterious to me. And I was just wondering, you know, why is one sister covering her hair, not the other one? Um, are they both Muslim? And you know, why would they differ? So. I ultimately had to hire a translator in order to find out the answers to any of my questions and then visit them at home, uh, which was an amazing experience getting to know that family. And this draws you closer to the family and particularly to their mother, right. who, who's really struggling herself. It's a bit of the adult perspective on refugee resettlement. Getting outside of the classroom was very illuminating. Spending time in the homes of the students was really where I began to feel a deeper connection to them and to their parents. In their case, their mom was a single mother. She had lost their father during the Iraq War after he sided with the Americans. And he's missing, presumed dead, probably killed because of his cooperation with U.S. forces. And um, that was that created their impoverishment. Like many Iraqi households, it's a single mom with children, and that's a very typical structure. So their breadwinner is missing. And in essence, they've been struggling ever since the, the loss of their father. Um, so she's trying to make it in the U.S. as a single mom without English. You know, she's trying to find work, uh, and the girls are struggling at school at the outset and really, really missing their dad. Um, and they also had seen horrific things. So uh, they fled from Iraq to Syria and um, encountered the Syrian civil war unexpectedly. They lived through horrific car bombings in their neighborhood and had had really like seen firsthand, um, you know, bloodshed, war. Um, and were recuperating, and they had post-traumatic stress. So they had a lot of hurdles to get over. Two other students who saw atrocities firsthand as well are the brothers from Congo, Solomon and Methuselah. Solomon and Methuselah impressed me right away as the two students who showed up just completely ready to learn. So whatever difficulties they'd had, um, they somehow were uh, ready um to put those behind them and to face forward and to just take advantage of every second they had in this country right away. And that's the, that was a question I had when I, when I saw them showing up and just absorbing English faster than anybody else. I was wondering, well, why are those two kids so ready to learn and who are their parents and how are they doing such a spectacular job that their kids are just ready to go from day one? What was the answer? Well, visiting their family at home, I found... 
um, an intact family, both parents, very stable, loving environment at home, um, a, a, a couple who were um, uh, very affectionate and um, very dignified and very graceful. Uh, they constantly wanted to feed me meals. And I was just marveling at the home environment that they'd managed to hold on to through unbelievable difficulty themselves. And one thing I, I discovered was that in Congolese culture, there's a real prohibition in, in terms of talking about difficulty. So the family didn't really want to tell me their story. They didn't really want to say why they'd had to leave the Congo. They felt that it would cause me an emotional burden, hmm. and they wanted to protect me from their own difficult past. Well, this is in part what drives you to visit the yeah. Congo right. and to understand what they came from. Yeah. I... um. I went around Denver and I was asking various people, you know, uh, how can I get to know the Congolese community better? I'm, I'm meeting this one family. I'm, I'm trying to learn about their origins. And I I discovered that a friend of mine had organized a trip for some Air Force instructors. So I went with them to the Congo and I felt safe in their company. They were studying demilitarization or why militia groups had taken over the Congo, especially on the eastern side, and what was happening there as the United Nations tried to demilitarize that area. So I went along and learned a lot about what had caused this one family to flee. You learn uh, sort of micro on the ground what affected that family, but you also learn macro. You visit a hospital, for instance, that specializes in repairing injuries from rape because rape is so commonly used as a tool of war there. Rape is epidemic in that part of the Congo. And um, when I found some studies looking at what teenagers like Solomon and Methuselah might have survived or witnessed, I found that nine out of 10 teenagers their age in that part of the Congo had experienced firsthand traumatic events. Two-thirds had seen their home burn. Two-thirds had seen someone die. One-third had witnessed the act of rape. One-fifth had been abducted themselves. So, So incredible Um, atrocities and difficulty. Yeah. It is against that backdrop that I find it amazing at how often refugee families succeed and how quickly they become self-sustaining. I think the mistake that we make as Americans um, kind of taking in the news of refugees is to think that their stories are only grim or depressing, which I think elicits in us a feeling of wanting to turn away or hopelessness. In fact, when you actually meet refugee families, you find people who are unbelievably resilient and who are who have survived so many things. By the time they come here, they feel that that life here is tremendously more easy, uh, that that they're finally being given an opportunity to, to thrive in a safe home. And they are so filled with joy. They're so thankful. And um, they're very celebratory. The experiences I had with refugee families, you know, were were um, much more f- fun and positive than the headlines would make you think those mm-hmm. experiences would be. And it was really incredible to watch the teenagers blossom in the classroom and sort of, you know, uh, start being interested in one another, having crushes on one, one another, inviting each other for sleepovers, that sort of thing. And their stories are told in this new book, The Newcomers, Finding Refuge, Friendship, and Hope in an American Classroom. Helen Thorpe is the author from Denver, and it's set at South High School, where she spent a year. Thanks so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thank this, you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.